So a reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 10, uh, which is on page 1144 um, in the Blue Bibles. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Thanks a lot, Liz. Do make sure you can uh, see that passage open in front of you. Uh, let me pray just before we get stuck in. Loving Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for that reminder and that encouragement just now from, from Daph and Graham uh, that our desire as a church is to know and love the Lord Jesus better. Father, thank you that we can do that as we spend time in your word. So we pray that uh, now that by your spirit you would speak to us, that you would point us to the Lord Jesus, and that we would love him more as a result of what we hear. It's for his sake we pray. Amen. Well, we've just had the Christmas holidays, haven't we? We're probably just recovering still from the Christmas holidays. Uh, And I want you to imagine that over the holidays, you had some friends visiting your house for a few days. Uh, One evening after dinner, you sat down with your friend and they turned to you with a, a, quite a serious look on their face and they said that they'd been meaning to ask you about some issues that they were facing at their church back at home. I wondered if they could ask you your advice. You've got no idea what they're going to say, but you let them go ahead and so they go on. Well, they say, first of all, there's this guy in the church. I can't say who, but well... He's sleeping with his dad's wife. It's shocking, I know, but, but what's more shocking, what's more disturbing, is that no one seems to be all that bothered. In fact, people seem to be talking about it quite openly. They're, they're even boasting about it. There's a whole group of guys in the church that, that go down to the brothel every week, and, and they don't see any problem with that. It's all a bit of a mess. There's a pause and you start to try and think of some sort of response when your friend says, no, no, there's more. There's been a few disagreements in the church recently, things that that could have been sorted out relatively easily. But instead, church members, well, they're, they're taking each other to court. They're suing each other in the courts. Then there's the church meetings. They're They're carnage. Nobody is interested in listening to anyone else. They all just want to speak and have their turn. They all talk over each other. They show off their gifts and they sideline people they don't think are very important. And then there's these cliques, these groups forming in the church. 
And so Sunday mornings are just a bit like being at a football match with one pastor's fans over here and another pastor's fans over here, and they, they won't talk, they just look at each other. I could go on, but well, that's probably enough for now, and I just, I just wondered whether you had any advice. What, what would you do? Where would you start? I wonder what you'd say to your friend that evening. Where would you begin with all those issues? Last week, if you were here, we we started a new series looking at 1 Corinthians, and we saw that this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul addressing those sorts of issues. All the things in that imaginary conversation are taken straight from this letter. They are real issues in the Corinthian church. And last week we saw that at the heart of all the mess, at the root of all those problems, is that the Corinthians have become self-centered rather than Christ-centered. They'd made the gospel, the church, the Christian life all about themselves. And as a result, things were falling apart. And so Paul writes this letter to shift the Corinthians' focus, to, to shift it away from themselves and back to Jesus. And in chapter 1, verse 10, he begins with this issue of unity. He appeals to them that they would be united and not divided as a church. And so that's our first point this evening. Be united, not divided. Just look at verse 10 again with me. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, Paul could have chosen to tackle any number of those issues, but he chooses first to address this problem of division. And that's because unity is vital for the health of a church. This isn't a case of, wouldn't it, all be, wouldn't it be good if we could all just get along a little bit better? No, for Paul, unity is a serious matter. And not just for Paul, just look at the basis of his appeal. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right at the start, Paul wants to impress upon the Corinthians the importance of unity in the church. As Christ's apostle and in the name of Christ, Paul says they must be united in mind and thought. And he doesn't leave much room for misunderstanding, does he? Just look at it again. He says, I appeal to you that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you and that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. The literal translation emphasizes it even more. He says, I appeal that you speak the same thing in the same mind and of the same thought. And so this isn't just putting up with each other. It's not just trying to get along. No, Paul wants perfect unity in the church. That's not to say that that the church should just be full of clones, people who all look and talk the same way. Later in chapter 12, Paul will describe the church as a body, a body with different parts. And so the church is diverse, with people from different backgrounds, different races, different personalities, different gifts. It's a body, a diverse body, made up of different parts. But it's a body that's united 
a body that's knitted together and therefore all working in the same direction. And so Paul isn't appealing here for uniformity for a bunch of clones, but unity, being of one mind. Or to put it negatively, he's appealing for a church that doesn't fight and quarrel. That seems to be the problem in verse 11, doesn't it? Just look at verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Rather than unity, there's division in the Corinthian church. A division that's resulting in fighting and quarreling among members. What are they quarreling about? Verse 12. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. There are divisions and quarrels as the people in the church seem to be aligning themselves with different leaders and preachers. Are we going to come back in just a moment to, to what's going on with those different leaders uh, in, just a, in, yeah, in just a minute? Uh, but it's not hard to imagine what, well, what it must have been like to go along to Corinth Evangelical Church on a Sunday morning, is it? It wouldn't take you long to realize that there were a number of cliques forming in the church. The same little groups of people would always form after each Sunday service. And if you listened in to their conversation, you probably hear them moaning about that group over there. The person sitting next to you will let out a big sigh as they read the notice sheet and they realize it's that guy preaching next week. They might lean over to you and say, sorry to bother you, but... I notice you're new, and I don't want to say, I really wouldn't bother coming back next week. You see, it's our, it's our other pastor preaching. And, well, between me and you, he's terribly boring. I try to avoid him if I can. Later in the week, you decide to go along to the church business meeting. The atmosphere is tense. There's no warmth, just, well, just stony-faced people who seem to have come determined to disagree with whatever that elder decides to say. And then later in the week, you're, you're in the queue chatting to someone at Lidl, and you tell them that, that you've started going to the church down the road. Well, they look at you slightly confused. Really? They say. I'm not a churchgoer, but I've heard that place has got some big issues. They're always fighting with each other, always falling out, it seems, I wouldn't go there if I were you. You see, division destroys the church. It destroys the church and it has a direct impact on the church's mission. That's why Jesus prays for the unity of his people in John 17. Just listen to his prayer. He says, Father, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prays for the unity of his people because he knows that is the way we witness to him. That is the way the world will know that the Father has sent the Son. And so Paul appeals for unity. He wants the Corinthians to be united, 
not divided. But that's not all. It's not all that Paul wants because, well, he knows that disunity in the church is just a symptom. It's a symptom of something far more serious. The big issue that we began to think about last week is that the Corinthians have become self-centered rather than Christ-centered. And so that is what lies at the heart of their division. They've stopped focusing on Christ and started to boast in and elevate human leaders. And so, yes, Paul's appeal is that they would be united, not divided, but he knows that will only happen if they are Christ-centered, not man-centered. That's our second point this evening. Be Christ-centered, not man-centered. Just look at verse 12 with me again. Verse 12, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. You see, the Corinthians have divided over different leaders. And it's important that we see where the fault lies here. The fault isn't with the leaders themselves. This isn't a case of good guys versus bad guys, uh, sound preachers versus heretics. No, no, the list includes two apostles, Paul and Peter, that's Cephas, one godly church leader, Apollos, and then Christ himself. And so the issue isn't with the leaders. No, the issue is with the Corinthians' attitude towards them. They're trying to elevate some at the expense of others. And so there's the followers of Paul. Paul was the one who brought the gospel to Corinth. We read about that in Acts 18. He planted the church there. And so maybe there were some in the church saying, we've been here since Paul began this whole thing. We're the original Corinth evangelical church members. We're with Paul. Then there's the followers of Apollos. Apollos was an impressive speaker. And that went down very well in Corinth. You see, in Corinthian society, there were they were often these traveling itinerant philosophers, <clears throat> teachers and speakers that people would align themselves to. And the main criteria for judging these teachers was their speaking ability. The more talented a speaker you were, the bigger the following you would have. And so Apollos would have been very popular in the Corinthian church. A talented speaker he made that old guy Paul seem pretty dull and boring. Thirdly, there were the followers of Cephas or Peter. Uh, we haven't got any record of Peter ever having travelled to Corinth. And so perhaps this was a following from afar. After all, Peter was the big name, wasn't he, over in Jerusalem? And so maybe some in Corinth had decided that it would sound impressive to say, we're with Peter you know, Peter, the apostle, one of the original disciples, founder of the church. Yeah, yeah, he's one of us. Team Paul, team Apollos, team Peter. And then slightly strangely, team Christ. There's different opinions to what, what Paul's getting at here. Maybe he's saying that he, Paul, follows Christ and that the Corinthians should all do the same. Or maybe he's just being ironic. 
Some of the Corinthians claim to be Christ followers. Uh, they love to sound super spiritual. We're not interested in any church or denomination or, or group or leader. We're just Jesus people, they say. But Paul knows it's just another self-centered power play. And so he sarcastically says, some of you even say you follow Christ. I think that makes more sense of his question there in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Some of you say I follow Christ, but Christ isn't a name among many groups in the church. He's not a poster boy for a clique or a justification for your quarreling. It's not Team Paul versus Team Jesus. It's just Team Jesus. And so you see, the problem wasn't with the leaders. The problem was with the Corinthians' attitude towards them. They were defining themselves in relation to people. They were man-centered. Which, when you stop and think about it, is is actually just another way of being self-centered, isn't it? Aligning yourself with a particular person to make you seem impressive. You seem like you're in the know or, or in the right crowd. It's all about you. And so in verse 13, Paul uses himself as an example just to, just to show how ridiculous all this is. Look at verse 13. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Just think about what you're doing, Paul says. Was I, Paul, crucified for the forgiveness of your sins? Am I your saviour? Were you baptised in my name? Did you come in repentance and faith to me? Did you submit your life to me as Lord and God? Of course you didn't. When you put it like that, it sounds ridiculous. But that is what the Corinthians were doing. And then in verse 14, it seems that, uh, well, as part of this kind of hero worship, people were boasting in the people that baptized them. And so again, you can imagine the kind of conversation, can't you? I was baptized by Paul, you know. You know the Paul? Just remind me who, who baptized you. Oh, oh Apollos. Oh, he's, he's not an apostle, is he? It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's crazy, but, but it's the Corinthian mindset. This is what happens when the church becomes self-centered rather than Christ-centered. And so again, in verses 14 to 17, Paul is trying to shift their focus. He wants to show them that they're, they're completely missing the point. Look at verse 14. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Paul says, you're missing the point, Corinthians. It really doesn't matter who baptized you. That isn't important. In fact, I'm glad I only baptized a few of you so that you can't start dragging my name into all this nonsense. It doesn't matter who baptized you. What matters is that you heard and responded to the gospel. What matters is that that God's Spirit worked through the preaching of the gospel and you came to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That is what matters. 
That's why Paul says in verse 17, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And we're going to think more about that verse next week, and we're going to see that Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that the power is in the message, not the messenger. It's not in the wisdom or eloquence of Paul or Apollos or Peter, but in the gospel, the good news that Christ died for sins. The gospel of Christ and the cross. That is where true wisdom is. That is where the power is. It's through the gospel and the Spirit's power that people are saved. And that is why it's utterly ridiculous to obsess over and boast about human leaders. And so you see, the Corinthians have become man-centered rather than Christ-centered. And as a result, they were divided. They were fighting. They were quarreling with each other and using human leaders to justify their self-centered judgmentalism. And the constant temptation as we go through this letter to the Corinthians is to point at them and say, thank goodness we're not like that. Thank goodness we would never do anything like that. But that is always a foolish way for us to read the Bible, isn't it? Self-centeredness is not beyond any of us. And so we need to be on our guard. We need to keep praying that, that God would prevent us from slipping into that Corinthian mindset. The mindset that focuses more on people, more on ourselves than on Christ. Because self-centeredness leads to division. And division damages the church. Paul's appeal in these verses is one that we all need to hear. He wants us to be completely, perfectly united in Christ. And he knows that's only possible if we remain focused on Christ and not ourselves. That's what we thought about last week's prayer meeting, isn't it? The only way that we will grow as a church, the only way we will see change in the lives of people in Chessington is if we continue to know and love Christ more and so remain focused on and united in him. Because when our focus is on Christ, when we remember all that he has done for us at the cross, all our personal wants and preferences, they, they get pushed aside, don't they? The differences that we have over things like music or, or what a Sunday service might look like or anything else, those things are put into perspective, even celebrated. As we stop thinking about how the church can serve us and start thinking about how we can serve the church. When our focus is on Christ, we'll be quick to forgive the failures of others because we know that we have been forgiven so much more by God. When our focus is on Christ, we want to do all that we can to sacrificially love one another because we know that is how we show the world we belong to a God who has given his son for us. And if we're involved in any sort of leadership here, when we focus on Christ, we will want to point others to him and not to ourselves. 
We will want to fade into the background as Christ takes center stage in all that we do. Later on in chapter 3, Paul writes, What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through through whom you came to believe. You see, as Christians, we're not meant to view ourselves or anyone else as heroes to be worshipped. Women to see ourselves and others as servants. Servants of the only hero. Servants of the only one worthy of our worship. The Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be united in and for him and him alone. And so we need to ask God that he would help us to do that. Let's pray to him now. Jesus prays, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray for the unity of this church. We pray that we wouldn't be man-centered, man-focused, self-centered, self-focused, but that we would be Christ-centered, Christ-focused. As a group of people, that we would have the Lord Jesus at the center of all that we do, that we would be united in and for him, so that the world would know that you have sent him, sent him as the Savior and Lord. Father, please help us by your spirit to be united in and for Christ, we pray, for his glory. Amen.